wife, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 336. And with that number, we'll give a shout out to U.S. Women's National Team legend, Michelle Akers. Back in 1999, Akers played a total of 1,336 minutes across 20 games for the red, white, and blue, including five of the six Women's World Cup matches. She was recently named to the Orlando Pride coaching staff, reuniting her with her 1990s U.S. Women's National Team teammate, Amanda Cromwell, who is now head coach of the Pride. All right, so two chats today. First, with Jason Anderson of Black and Red United, a great site that covers Washington Spirit, D.C. United, a lot of other D.C. soccer. Um, Jason and I talked about, uh, you know, where we are with the Washington Spirit and, and Steve Baldwin and Michelle Kang and the sale and what the players want. It's a pretty long, dramatic story. Um, we kind of started with... October when the players came and said, hey, we think, you know, the club should be sold to Michelle Kang. Um, sounds like it, it made a lot of progress on the story, but if you want more background, just go to blackandredunited.com. Lots of great coverage there. And then I spoke with Sandra Herrera of CBS Sports. She also hosts the Attacking Third podcast. Um, she's done a lot of great coverage over the years based in Chicago. Sandra and I talked about the growing overlap uh, between NWSL and Liga MX, Liga MX Semenil, that is. Um, you know, we've seen Mia official head down to Tigris and then... So, Maria Sanchez has, you know, signed with Houston, and I, I bet there's going to be more signings coming up. Um, and I forgot to mention it in the chat, but it is uh, possible to watch Liga Max in the U.S. Um, there's some games on on Telemundo, on TUDN. Um, if you have Fubo, you can record the games. Some of the clubs, uh, if a game isn't picked up on TV, they're putting it on their Facebook channel or their Twitter channel. So, hey, just because NWSL isn't playing doesn't mean there's not great women's soccer to watch. And then, of course, there is a Jen Spleener segment, of course. Uh, talk a little bit about contracts for NWSL players um, and international slots as we're kind of in the middle of contract signing season. And as always, don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Two channels for you, at MixZone, M-I-X-X-E-D-Zone, and at KeeperNotes. All right, Jen Cooper, the Keeper, here with Jason Anderson, Managing Editor of Black and Red United. And Jason, with uh, the latest news about Washington Spirit ownership, I thought I need to talk to Jason. I need to get a clear view of this because it's been such a drama-filled year, of course, for everybody and for almost every club. But the Spirit story, I, I think it could have a happy ending. Um, but tell me... Um, Tell me where we are with Michelle Kang, you know, possibly buying the spirit. Uh, so I guess the, the best place to start is from the time the players made their statement uh, back early October. They made a statement saying that they wanted Steve Baldwin to sell the team to her, um, to Kang. And um, that obviously it gets a ton of attention. And since then, there have been, you know, pretty regular breaks of of news about the disagreement that they're having that 
Uh, she was offering much more money than the competing bid from uh, Todd Bailey uh, and right. uh, Jennifer Tepper McKessie. Um, that you know, at one point, her bid was thirty-five million. I, I think there, the second bid did go from twenty-one to twenty-five at some point, but her bid was still thirty-five million. And she also, I believe, Molly Hensley Clancy posted a letter in which uh, Kang addressed the Board of Governors and included a note that. Um, that her her plans included up to twenty five million in infrastructure improvements to the club, which is huge because this is a team that does not have a training facility. Um, they're training at like the nicest high school I've ever seen in my life, but it is still a high school. Um, they're they're and, renting everything. They have no yes, they have no facilities they, of their own. They they are renting office space. Uh, they do not have a stadium. They do, they don't have any of these things. Um, so she's talking about some massive for for NWSL. These are massive figures. Um, we're so used to uh, the the millions stopping in the you know five six seven range, and we're talking <laughs> you know sixty million dollars all told. Um, so the spirit actually at one point. Uh, announced that they were in exclusive negotiations with the other deal, um, which people did not care for. Um, I think it was a pretty unpopular thing to say uh, from the team's account. And I can imagine that a lot of NWSL owners were also like, well, hold on a second. If you get 10 million less, then that's going to reflect badly on the valuation of my club, um, which I... And and it's so clearly (laughs) saying, sorry, it's it's so clearly saying that you know, Steve Baldwin is like, I don't want to sell to Michelle Kane. Yes. And it's like, it just reeks of of ego and childishness and a lot of other worse things. It it boiled down to a personal conflict uh, that as far as I can tell, and as far as I've heard, um, the personal side of it superseded any business concerns. Um, The the amount of money was, was never going to be enough. It was one of those things that, Steve Baldwin apparently just decided no matter what the offer was, he was never willingly going to sell. Um, And in kind of a, the kind of recurring theme in all of these things, since going even back into the spring, when apparently she initially made an offer to buy the the rest of the club and, and um, back into August when um, apparently she renewed that interest. And at some point, according to her, that interest was accepted initially, but then never signed off on. He basically was like, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, No, I'm not going to do it. Um, But in any case, um, the recurring theme here is that uh, Kang was not going to be denied. And so even when they said it was exclusive negotiations with another bid, and even when it appeared that, you know, she couldn't even get Baldwin to sit down at the table and and talk about it, um, she was still so determined to... Uh, by the team that she ended up going to a bunch of the other investors and sort of convincing them, winning them over um, and getting them to agree to what seems like a very complicated plan. I'm not a business person at all in any way, shape or form. Um, But essentially the nature of the smaller investors, not all of them, but some of them signed deals where, um, they could change their stake uh, from one kind of stake to another kind of stake. And by changing it, they would get voting rights. Uh, they would get us basically at the club's own version of the board of governors. They would have a right to vote on club matters. 
And and we're talking about the the owners who were announced. What was that? Maybe late twenty twenty, kind of you know, uh, as LA was announced. You know, so, yeah. so it's like it was a, and and other Brianna Scurry and just well, you know names in the DC area, right? Well, so so we're talking that that is when I think Ovechkin came in separately. Um, but there was one right. big announcement where it was like forty something people. Um, and right. this is people that were in that group. Um, uh, Ovechkin has never made a statement on this uh, one way or another. I do believe the Washington Post reported that eventually uh, Jenna Bush Hager and Chelsea Clinton were among the investors that ended up siding with Kang. Um, but all of this stuff happened behind the scenes. A lot of it is not super public. Um, right. Former, this this being D.C., of course, you have to get into the government side. Like former uh, Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle uh, is, was actually one of the only – I believe the only person from the investors that broke ranks from Baldwin and went to Kang who actually was quoted anywhere. Um, and he spoke to the Post briefly and basically said, look, um, she's offering like much more money. The players clearly want this. It just seems like it's it's a no brainer. Like we have to do this. Um, And to such an extent that those that group of investors uh, banded together to deliver a letter informing Baldwin that if if he didn't um, if he did not sell to the highest bidder, which in this case was was Kang and only Kang. There was not like a third party coming in. Um, if right. he didn't sell the highest bidder, that they were going to, I believe the phrasing was, um, retain any legal remedy uh, to uh, make sure our fiduciary uh, concerns are appropriately looked after. Because ultimately, um, they are investors. And if you're going to sell for a lower price, there's got to be a reason there. And it appeared yeah. that they were not satisfied with the reason. Um so all of that stuff played out um, very uh, unfortunately full of legalese and business stuff when when um, people just uh, every everyone involved, I think, just wants to be watching a soccer game. <laughs> um, I know. <laughs> like, but, uh, we don't like no... this business stuff stopping such a jerk. Right? right. Like, And it's and it's beyond saying, oh, he's childish. You know, he's a jerk. It, it, it's it's what we were saying about the other owners where it's like, wait, if you would accept a bid $10 million less than the best bid out there, what does that tell all the people right. that are interested in buying into the league or buying a current franchise or yeah. It, it's like, this is not a play thing. This is a real no. business. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, it's, I, I at one point was given the impression, no one ever told me this distinctly. I had to sort of put this together. So it could be a misinterpretation on my part, but I was at one point under the impression that the the fig leaf involved in taking the lower bid was that Todd Bailey's uh, contacts in sports and entertainment, because that is what he is an investor in. He's uh, an investor in the Los Angeles Lakers and a few other things. He's tried to buy several other soccer teams and so on and so forth. Um, that the idea was that his contacts long term could be seen as you know that other owners would see those contacts as worth more than the ten million gap here, um, which to me doesn't add up in an era where you know the people that have bought into NWSL teams are Naomi Osaka owns a portion of the the North Carolina Courage, uh, Chance the Rapper's management owns a portion of the Chicago Red Stars, Alex, Alex Ovechkin we just talked about. Um, Angel City's most of their ownership group is is famous people. It seems like um, so. If you're going to tell people that they need those sports and entertainment contacts, I would 
I feel like it would hold up. You'd be like, well, don't aren't there enough? Uh, aren't these, you know, is and are it they Natalie worth 10 Portman? million? <laughs> yeah. Um, isn't Natalie Portman uh, a famous person? Uh, last I checked, she was, and she is an investor in the league. Um, and you can go down. It's It's a list. It's a long list. It's dozens of people that are in those fields that have those connections already. So, um, so that was the, the way things said they were going, or it seemed to be going until Kang kind of figured out a way to get around all of that by persuading several, enough of these investors, uh, that they're, the percentages for all these investors were never given out. Um, and it's not known exactly how much, um, any one party had it was reported that Kang initially had 35% of the spirit. Um, and she got enough of these people that could convert their, their stake in the club or they haven't done it yet. I should, shouldn't say that they, they, the theory, the, th- the theoretical idea that they would be willing to convert their note to support her agenda at uh, the team's uh, business meetings um, she got enough of them to say that they would be willing to do that if she were in charge, that she cobbled together nice. uh, a sort of a, um, uh, a consensus of uh, what's reported to be 52% of the spirits uh, ownership, the, the, the voting ownership, not the on paper ownership, but the people that actually can can vote on club matters. Um, I Baldwin said, well, that's not that's not accurate. This is not how those things are supposed to be resolved. And the league board of governors basically said, come in and present your case. So I think it was a week, eight days ago, they came in and both sides presented their thoughts uh, uh, on why, what they were saying was accurate. And according to the reporting that's out there, um, it was kind of a, kind of open and shut. Um, it sounds from the post reporting, especially that the, the Baldwin side of this was mostly, yeah, I, I believe uh, petty stuff was the phrase that was quoted from an anonymous source. Um, so it was more, you know, personal grievances than it was. This is the compelling business reason why you should take this lower bid that I have found rather than this other bid uh, from, you know, someone who's offering significantly more money. Um, now, Everyone celebrated when you know when that announcement came out that the the, the league sent out that said that they had um, acknowledged. I believe they had acknowledged that she had acquired some of the shares and that um, the path is now open for her. Basically, the the um, they're going to allow those stakeholders who are willing to change the nature of their ownership. Um, they're going to allow them to do that. Basically, the league signed off on this as a concept, not as an action. And that the Washington soccer partners, the blanket or the umbrella uh, ownership group, would then have to settle it um, amongst themselves. So basically the league was like, okay, this plan is not something we're going to object to and we're going to give it back to you to sort it out from here. Um, but it, you know, it, it kind of beyond belief that the um, – that everyone would agree to this or enough of them would agree to this plan to give her 52% and then would change their minds now that they are getting a path to do what they want. Um, but that's not, it's not settled yet. We're not, you know, maybe the, uh, the soccer analogy would be like, it's three, nothing. And it's, you know, the 85th minute, but they do have to finish the game out. Um, and by that, I mean, that's a good analogy. I, like I, that. I, I mean, you know, at this point it seems like they have to just, have an official stockholder meeting where you know people can vote 
on the the exchange of of shares and the uh, the changes in whose ownership or whose stake goes to what. Um, but eventually, it, it appears that there's no way for it not to end with her becoming the majority owner. Um, and at that point, I don't know um, what Baldwin and Bill Lynch will do because they will be. There's nothing about them going away. It's just that they won't have the ability to previously. They basically been voting two to one uh, against her and then they get their way. Um, And now they won't be able to do that. So I'm not sure if they're going to just sell their stakes to somebody else and get out entirely. I don't know. Um, I also know that the league has not um, the league still, if I'm not mistaken, has still not allowed the spirit back on the board of governors for the uh, violations they found earlier, um, which I think won't, I believe won't be, um, that won't be straightened out until the ownership situation is settled. So um, I think that's everything that happened. Um, I (laughs) hope, I hope people listening can forgive me on, you know, this is a Shakespearean in magnitude drama that stems back almost a full year. And, you know, in the middle of the wildest season in terms of news, uh, mostly bad news um, in league history. And also I would argue the wildest on field thing to happen in league history, which is the spirit amid all of their drama going on this long unbeaten run to win the championship. It just things like that. It's like um, the competition is like Michelle Beto scoring on a header, um, you know, in, in terms of wild things. And it's, that's one moment, whereas this is a thing that, that went on for weeks. So yeah, it's, it's been a lot, uh, following the spirit closely has been a, uh, it's, it takes a lot of brain power and a lot of stored space in my head. I'm probably, I've probably forgotten a bunch of things that I had to just ship out so that I could retain some of this. <laughs> well, you did a really good job. I think walking us through just the last few months. And of course, anybody that wants more, information of all the drama before those two months can can go to black and red united and you know i know you've got a lot of great articles there covering each twist and turn because there's been so many of them um i mean like i feel like if you wrote this as you know a footballer's you know soap soap opera that people would be like no this is too this is too crazy this isn't real it's like no no this is real but i feel like we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, yes. And more than anything, what makes me happy is, is not the, not necessarily the, okay, you know, see Baldwin won't be in control and a woman will be in control, but, but that the, a person who has that much money wants to invest in women's soccer has fought like hell over the mm-hmm. last several months to, you know, move ahead, you know, has the players backing wants to invest in infrastructure like i i feel like that needs a big spotlight because oh, yeah. you know i'm i'm old enough where you know i remember way too many it's like oh soccer is never going to make it in this country women's soccer is never going to make it in this country it's like look people with millions of dollars to spend want to spend it not only on soccer but women's soccer and want to mm-hmm. fight to spend it on women's soccer michelle kang didn't go like all right, it's not worth it. I'll go buy another club or I'll go do right. something else. Right. This was a, no, I am committed to this. I want to do this right. And, and I'm in it for the long haul. And so yes. I'm just, I'm so excited about it. So, so give me a sense from your work uh, and, 
you know, talking to fans, talking to players, like they've got to be really jazzed about this. I know the players aren't back in camp yet, but just, right. you know, o- over your last several months of talking to them. Yeah. Um, I mean, the obvious thing that the players wrote their open letter that every single player shared on their social media, um, which is, uh, to, the, to the best of my knowledge, is an unprecedented thing in American soccer. Um, maybe in American sports, uh, at least for team sports. I don't, I don't know that there is an example uh, of an entire squad of players banding together to make a public statement like that uh, on behalf of one owner over another. Um, certainly not over. Um, yeah, maybe there's something in the past or some sport that I don't follow closely, but I can't think of anything. So, um, yeah, the the players are very close with her. There was a um, they had a Halloween party uh, after that the season finale. They they had a Halloween party at the stadium, um, and they I was told that the players sort of dared her to show up in costume as a soccer player, and they thought there's no way that you know it was kind of a joke. And then she showed up, she did it. Um, oh, that's awesome! And they were delight like the players apparently were just absolutely delighted. They couldn't believe it. Um, and uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that is just sort of an example of what I've heard over and over again is that the players, um, it's not just them saying like, well, 35 million is more than 25 million, or it's not just them saying Steve brought Richie Burke in here and brought Larry Best in here. And we don't want him around because of those actions. It wasn't just those things though. Those are things. Um, those are definitely things that I think the players I, most likely, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but that's what they do feel. But it's also a genuine uh, affection for for Kang, for for you know her engagement, the seriousness with which she has uh, gotten into this. Um, I know I heard that she was very much during the last few weeks of the season, during games, um, during breaks in play, trying to you know check other scores around the league, look at the standings, like really engaged in the idea of let's make sure we get in the playoffs, you know, what, where, what place are we going to be in? What is this going to mean? Who are we going to play? Um, these right. kind of things where it's, you know, a lot of sports owners are not fans may want them to be just as engaged as, as they are. But the, the reality is that a lot of times they are not, um, they're not, they're, they're paying just, attention, they're just, but yeah, they're an investor and they're paying attention, but they're not engaged. They're not, uh, you know, they're not the up in the owner's is. box living and dying. You know, maybe Merritt Paulson's the one uh, owner who, you know, rightly or wrongly has shown a lot of passion in public um, that has kind of gone the wrong way some of the time. But, you know, mo- for the most part, you don't hear from that. You, you don't hear about it. Um, and, um, you know, she's at these games. She flew out to um, their game in Houston right after the Burke article uh came out in the post and the team had, I think three days to pull themselves together and come together under a new coach and go to Houston and play a difficult game in the summer. And she flew to that game. Um, and she flew on her personal jet. This wasn't that she bought a plane ticket is that, um, she is the kind of wealthy where she's like, I'm, I'm to get, get the jet ready. I'm flying out to Houston. Um, nice. so it's it's a very it's a a level of seriousness and engagement from ownership that uh, I think these players have craved for a long time. Um, and you know I will say to not blot out the entire last few years of the history of this team. Um, when Steve Baldwin came in, 
he did promise a lot of positive changes and, and expenditures, and he did follow through on a lot of them. And the players were very happy about a lot of those things. They did some things that um, uh, they partnered with a local university to give players avenues for education outside of soccer and out beyond their um, existing degrees. Um, so things like and that. For some, it might be finishing a degree that never got finished. Right, right. And so they were, they were, you know, they got a lot of these things. It just happened to come with these other, you know, there's misogyny in the office. There's misogyny and abuse on the training field. Um, and they were not, these were not separate. You couldn't separate those two things. The, the good stuff came with the bad stuff. And it seems like they're going to get much more of the good stuff. And to this point, I haven't heard anything uh, negative about the people that Kang wants to bring in. Um, there, there are a lot of new people coming in with the spirit that were kind of having to start at the end of the season, um, which is a, a very strange thing to have happen, but that was the world that they lived in. A lot of, a lot of people stepped down over the work environment, you know, rightfully slow, rightfully so um, really talented people that it, it it's going to be, it was and probably still is tough to replace them. Um, but yeah, the, the spirit, ha- it seems like under her leadership that they're going to become a better environment to be in for everyone, um, which the players care. They are not only thinking about who the coach is and is the coach going to be abusive or not. They're thinking about other the other people in the organization as well. It, it's not uncommon around NWSL. These are still pretty small organizations the players know everyone because the clubs are not that big they're not these you know nfl sized operations with 300 employees in the office plus you know 100 different coaches and trainers and whatnot um it is still these are still small businesses for lack of a better way to put it um and so they there are you know there's a closeness there and there's a level of caring um that the players have that they they hear and know what's going on in the office and they're not just going to be like, well, you know, I'm here to play soccer. That's not really my problem. They're concerned about these things. And it sounds like so far, at least that that aspect of things is also trending in a a good direction, which is, is crucial for the spirit. Well, and I I like how you say, you know, it's a small business, even better phrase might be for most of these clubs, it's a family run business, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's, it's not corporately held, it's privately held. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've really liked seeing over, I'd say, the past almost 15 years is WPS, those owners, it was individual owners as opposed to it was mostly corporate owners for WSA, right? And and that meant that there wasn't necessarily the rush to make money to show your shareholders, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of those owners didn't have... um, deep enough pockets to be in it for the long haul, which is a big reason, not the only reason, but a big reason that WPS only lasted three years. And one of the um, evolutions I think that we're seeing in NWSL um, is that we've slowly edged out the owners that were like, I can run it at this budget, but I can't ever go more. Right. You know, and you can't, you can't have a long-term successful business of any kind Mm-hmm. you know, with, with that kind of budget or, or mindset. So the fact that you've got Kansas city coming in going, we want a stadium, yeah. we want a training facility. We're investing in this. You've got Louisville coming in doing the same thing. You've mm-hmm. got Gotham rebranding and going, all right, we'll commit to Red Bull. 
Washington spirit continuing, you know, like you said, some things that Steve Baldwin, good things that he did do. Um, hey, you know, making that move to Audi Field, right? Mm-hmm. And it's still not every single game, but it's it's like right. that, that's, that's huge a, for the club, right? Right. That is one of the many unanswered questions for this next year is, um, it, you know, I don't think there's a single person that was glad they were at Segro. Um, right. So how's that going to work out? To be determined. They've had they had too much on their plate to get to that one just yet. Right. But it, it's like, but when I look at the league as a whole, not even looking at LA and San Diego, right? Mm-hmm. But but looking at the progress, you know, we've made with the clubs as they exist, right? That within its second year, Orlando got to move into a soccer-specific stadium, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the rain finally making that commitment to go back to downtown Seattle, right? You know, so it's 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 so exciting to me to see this evolution to long-term vision, committed, engaged. Mm-hmm. owners um now a lot of these clubs you still do have that small business family business feel because you know a situation like the spirit they're not like portland or houston or orlando where they're you know with an mls club too um and i think that's why it, it affects the players even more when there's not a huge front office that mm-hmm. can take care mm-hmm. of things it does come come down to a lot more often those personal relationships and and the hiring of, of an abusive coach or an inappropriate coach doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? right? Like, like, like you can't cut out Richie Burke and go, okay, you know, he's gone. So the problem solved. It's like, no, there was clearly a culture that let that yeah. happen. And, and especially so with- I'm, I'm just so, so thrilled to see the changes that, that are mm-hmm. happening for the spirit. Yeah. And, you know, especially the fact that, you know, everyone knew coming in that, Richie and Larry Best were both coming in with Steve Baldwin. Um, when he took over, it was sort of like these were settled issues for him when he he bought in. Um, it was not a I'm going to buy in and then we're going to hire a new coach because when he bought in, they were, you know, Jim Cabarra had been uh, fired just before the end of the season. They Tom Torres right. was an interim coach um, and it, it wasn't a we're going to they, they conducted an interview because I think they had to. But I feel like I was under the impression that effectively it was like, I'm buying into the team and these are the guys I'm going to put in charge of these things. And then, you know, all of these investigations that thankfully came out end up revealing that they were abusive. They were, you know, bullying in the office, bullying on the training field. Um, that stuff. And not goes- even bothering to do due diligence in terms right. of, you know, hiring, accepting applications, all that. Right. And, and and all of that stuff comes back to uh, Steve Baldwin's desk um, that that falls on him. Those were his handpicked people. Um, the culture he had put in allowed for them to stick around. It, it You know, it's one thing if you have handpicked people and they do something and you let them go or discipline them in, in you know, the ways that you would expect at any functional, not just business, but any functional environment where multiple people are involved in something. Um but that's not what happened at the spirit. It it took the Washington post uh, putting out their reporting. It took um, all of this, all of this stuff uh, to, to push for this to happen. Um, so as, as much as it is, the ending does feel good. It also does make you wonder about the NWSL writ large, which is like, what if this hadn't been such a widely 
You know, what if there wasn't such wide public pressure? What if the players hadn't spoken out? Um, what if Kang had just at a certain point been like, I've, you know what, I can't, I can't push this anymore. Um, I, I have to accept that it's not going to work for me. Um, all of those things are not to be taken for granted. They're not things that happened automatically. Um, and that's maybe a little bit of a worry when you look at a league where, you know, Portland's fans are very mad at their ownership and rightly so. And it sounds like the investigation over there is, is it's not clear whether they're going to say what happened or not. Um, Chicago, their fan base called for Arnhem Whistler to sell the team and, that's still an undetermined situation. Uh, I haven't heard anything about him actually considering doing so. Um, so these things, as much as we have maybe one example of the process through a lot of drama and acrimony working itself out, I don't know that we have some of these other situations that are also quite bad. Are they going to work out properly or not? It's it's not really clear. Um, and that's, you know, in, in this positive story, there is still the like, okay, can we apply this, the lessons from this one to a few of these other teams that are having problems? And the answer is very inconclusive at this point, I, I think is fair to say. So much movement, so much change, but and almost all of it's really great change. I mean, I know that's, that's a nice, easy way to kind of sum up um, what, we, what we've been talking about. Um, but hard one change too. Mm-hmm. So, so last, last question for you, Jason, uh, and I don't want this to be, um, you know, too much of a hard thing for you, but what's next for the spirit players on the field, right? Cause we've talked about all this stuff and we didn't even get to mention, Hey, <laughs> with all of these things going against them, they pulled off a two, one extra time win for their mm-hmm. first ever NWSL championship title you know, rookie of the year, goalkeeper of the year, all that good stuff. Um, and and I, I feel like Chris Ward deserved to be, you know, in the final three for, for coach of the year. So now Chris is, you know, the permanent head coach, um, no longer interim. So what do you think the next few months look like for the spirit on the field? Uh, I think that there are still some things that they were – because it all happened so fast, they didn't have a lot of time to sort of um, refine some of the game models and tactical stuff. Um, a lot of this was they did what they could with with what they had, with the time they had. Um, you know, for a stretch of that, that back half of the season, it was just Chris Ward and Paul Crichton, the goalkeeper coach, and that was it for coaches. Um, they added Lee Wynn and Annie Worden towards the end of the season. Um which is still, that's an, uh, you know, I, I don't believe, I, I believe Annie Worden is going to be back, but it hasn't been announced yet uh, officially. So it's one of those, I think it's happening, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, Lee Wynn was, his situation is very unique because he was still playing professional soccer. He's playing in Vietnam. Uh, I want to say he was in the top five in goal scoring in the Vietnamese league when COVID shut everything down. Um and he was sort of like, okay, I'm back in the U.S., but, you know, I don't really know what I'm going to do here and took the coaching post. Um, but it's not clear. The contract was to, through the end of 2021. Um, and I don't know what his next step is. I know the team wants him back. I know that players and coaches, everyone said that he really brought a lot to the table. Um, his experience playing in MLS, um, playing for the men's national team, et cetera. Um, 
I, I believe there was, I'm trying to remember which game it was, but there was a, a late season or even playoff game that uh, one of the shifts the spirit made that, that helped help them succeed and win a game were was Chris Ward said was a Lee win idea. It wasn't, um, his idea was, you know, Lee came to him and said like X, Y, and Z. And they were like, okay, you're right. And it worked. Uh, so it's that kind of very obvious impact that he had. And I don't know what, what's going to happen there. I, I know the team wants him back pretty badly. Um, but that, so that's one thing they have to settle. But as far as who they're going to be going forward, I think they mostly, they've so far managed to negotiate the off season without the only starting player from the playoffs that they've had leave the team is Tegan McGrady and her place in the lineup was still her and Julia Rotter were sort of battling, you know, neck and neck uh, for that entire back half of the season as to who the starter was and who would come in usually 65, 70 minutes, they would switch them up to stay fresh uh, at left back. So um, they haven't, they've kind of kept the starting lineup together Um most of the team it was under contract, so they didn't have to worry about too many deals that they had to renew or anything like that. It's we're we're speaking today, and it's um I think I've gotten about five emails from OL Rain announcing contract uh new contracts this season. Um, they didn't have to worry about that as much uh, with the spirit. Um, they didn't have a lot of draft picks. They managed to trade to get some draft picks. Um, I am under the understanding that. You know, as as has been spirit kind of tradition over the last few years, um, the draft picks will probably end up signed. I don't see them just as we picked them, but we don't know if they're going to play or not. Um, but as far as the starting 11 goes, I think it's pretty much going to be with with Rotter plugging in at left back full time. I think it's going to be the, the team that you saw. You know, they're going to miss Paige Nielsen and Sayori Takarada um, and McGrady, of course. They're going to miss those players, but. I think they're they're feeling pretty good. They get Bailey Feist back this year. She missed all of 2021, which right. uh, one of the many huge things that happened to the Spirit because I I was convinced coming into the season that she was going to have a breakout year, and during the preseason she was actually getting starts in preseason games ahead of Trinity Rodman to give you an idea of how good she was playing. Um, so they get her back. Um, they get Avery Collins back so they can add some depth on the front line that was, was, has a couple of professional seasons under her belt, but also had, um, an ACL injury last year. Um, so they've kind of, they've kind of really steered the ship really well that they'll, of course, being without Tori Huster for however long, uh, her Achilles takes, uh, the rehab from that I'm, I'm, is going to be tough, but, um, yeah, they, they seem really well set up all things considered, you know, this is not a, a team that got it done, got over the line one time and then kind of went their separate ways. Um, they kind of, they have all the ingredients to do it again. Um, and I think there's now a certain level of belief that some of the veteran players, you know, Kelly O'Hara and Emily Sonnet have seen so much that their self-belief with through the national team is so high. Um, right. But that's, that's now spread throughout the whole group. Um, that That's now, they have this proof of concept of, you know, look what we're capable of playing a little less uh, of the heavy possession style that, you know, we're a little more direct. We're a little more to the point. Um, we're relying a little more on our, our overall team speed and athleticism. Um, and that's a good thing. Uh, it, and it they're turned still out so that, young. Like yeah, the bulk of this squad is from 2019, 2020, 2021 you, draft. It's amazing. Yeah. You, you have a team that is outside of Kelly O'Hara 
and Aubrey Kingsbury, I believe everyone else is under 27. I, I think most of the rest of the lineup is players who are 26 and younger. Um, I might I might be getting an age wrong somewhere in there, but um, yeah, it's a very young team. Um, it's that which says that they'll probably get better is the thing. Like these players haven't hit their prime playing years yet, um, so there's still experience to be gained. Um, without losing speed and whatnot that you do as, as you get older. So yeah, the, the chances of them doing this uh, again and being an absolute contender, I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're not that far from the start of the theoretical start of preseason. We don't know that the CBA is going to allow it to start right on time, but um, you know, if preseason does, if the CBA passes before the February 1st and, and preseason starts on time, I don't know how you would be able to assemble a list of NWSL favorites to win it all in 2022 and not include them. Um, They just, they really, they don't lack for anything. I think is the best way to put it. They're, they're, they're good at everything. Every line, every position has um, a serious high end NWSL player. There's real depth. Um, They're able to problem solve in games. Um, They're able to adjust to the other team. Um, yeah, they, they really do have the elements to keep it going and now they won't be burdened with, um, all of, hopefully won't be burdened with all of the negativity that was, you know, kind of stuck on them, uh, through really, you know, no fault of their own. They get, you know, stuck with all of these, uh, crises and now they, they can just be unburdened to a certain extent and go be a soccer team and not be a soccer team plus all the other stuff. Um, so yeah, I think, and and I should clarify Mm-hmm. I should clarify for listeners that Aubrey Kingsbury is Aubrey Bledsoe. Yes. So we do have this time of year is when it looks like there's a lot of new names on rosters, but it's actually yes. just married. And that is, that, <laughs> is through the team. That, that is through the team that she is going to uh, play yeah. uh, for her playing name, as well as I assume her name in all other matters is going to be Aubrey Kingsbury. So um, I believe that's actually the national team as well was maybe the first place that had to announce that because of yes. the, the squad that yeah. they had to announce. So um so yeah, that was one other thing is that a bunch of spirit players in the middle of all of this were also planning off-season weddings. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the, of course they couldn't. The drama they, they never stops. Yeah, they had you know an un, unknowable number of things on all of their plates, and the fact that they came through it at all is pretty impressive. And the fact that they came through it while being a better soccer team than they've ever been uh, is really, you know, something I, I don't think I have any comparison to in in covering. You know, I've been. Uh, I'm I'm getting old. Uh, I've seen a lot uh, around uh, covering this league, covering MLS, paying attention to the U.S. women's and men's national teams. I've seen a lot, and I don't have anything that is like remotely similar to what the Spirit have have experienced in the last what seven eight months. Uh, it's just it's incredible. Well, and Jason, you did such a great job of walking us through just the last few months of it. Like I said before, you can always get a black and wet, black and red United to to read more of Jason's coverage of the Washington Spirit. And Jason, thanks so much for taking the time to to get me and all the listeners up to date. Uh, glad glad to be of of some help. I hope I didn't put things out of order or anything like that. It, it is a lot to sort of try and <laughs> try and piece together correctly. Time for a little Jen's planning. 
And we're going to talk about contract status, international slots, because we are in contract season in NWSL. We're getting daily announcements of players signing with clubs, re-signing or extending current contracts, being traded, being waived, in some cases transferring out of the league. It can be hard to keep track of these player movements, so be sure to check out my Google Sheet of NWSL rosters by club. It's linked on the Wosopedia page of KeeperNotes.com. I update these sheets every time a club makes a roster announcement. And of course, if you look at these sheets and if you see something that's missing, hey, just email me, Keeper at KeeperNotes.com, so I can make sure it gets fixed. So a few general notes about NWSL contracts. They can be up to three years in length with a one-year option uh, as well. And this season is the first season for NWSL that there are no longer federation-subsidized players, i.e. players who NWSL's contracts are held by U.S. soccer and Canada soccer instead of directly by the league. Um, so all players will now be contracted directly with their clubs. So that means players like Christine Sinclair, Megan Rapino, um, Alyssa Nair, you know, all of your U.S. allocations, as we used to call them, Canadian allocations, they will contract directly with their clubs. And keep in mind that any 2021 Canada soccer subsidized players, they will not need international slots moving forward. They've basically been grandfathered in. Um, they, they didn't in the past as allocations, and so the league decided they, they'll be grandfathered in as not counting towards international slots. And, of course, players can make more than the league maximum salaries these days if their clubs choose to use allocation money for that purpose. And that's a big reason that allocation money was created, the, you know, that, that the teams have been trading. It makes it a very desirable, tradable asset. Same for international slots. Uh, before this season, each team got four slots and they could trade them. You can't trade them permanently, but you can trade them for, you know, a year two years, that kind of thing. Um, but starting in 2022, each team basically starts with five. Some teams tend to trade them away. Some teams tend to hoard them because they sign a lot of internationals. Um, and that's another reason the, the Google Sheets I have on there, how many slots each team has, and also which players require an international slot. Because just because you might play for a foreign national team, doesn't mean that you require an international slot. That's basically uh, like a work visa status thing. Um, if you're a dual citizen or you have a green card in the U.S., you do not require an international slot. Um, if you weren't born in the U.S., if you're not a dual citizen, if you don't have a green card, um, say like Junendo, who uh, Angel City signed a few weeks back, Japanese international, she will require an international slot because she requires um, a P1 visa from the government. So lots of fun details there. Hope that all makes sense. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Sandra Herrera, the CBS sports reporter who covers all the women's soccer, right, Sandra? And there's just more and more for you to cover these days, it seems like. 
Gosh, it feels like it. You know, it's so we we just got into NWSL off season, and we're just keeping things going at CBS. We're right in the mix of uh, the AFC Women's Asian Cup, and um, I'm excited to chat with you about uh, all kinds of very specific things regarding NWSL. And yeah, and and you don't even yeah, you don't even yet. I guess we, you know, CBS doesn't yet have any um, rights to any of the the League MX Feminile properties, but I, I'm sure they will <laughs> at some point. <laughs> never say been, never, right? Yeah, the way they've been picking up properties. But I wanted to talk to you because, I mean, you and I have talked off and on for years about um, just all the potentials of women's pro soccer in Mexico and, and between NWSL and Mexico. And it's been so great to see some of that come to fruition in the last couple of years with the Houston Dash going down to Monterey to play Tigris in 2019, then hosting Tigris this past fall. But also on the individual side, like let's talk, let's talk first about, you know, your your hometown. We had Maria Sanchez leave Chicago to go join Tigris. Mm-hmm. And then we had Sarah Lubert, um, you know, in, in the beginning of Liga Mex having international slots, Sarah Lubert um, going to Club America this fall. And and she actually had scored a goal in the Ligia, right? Yeah. You know, I am, I love the, or sort of bearing witness to, right. In these early phases, this sort of overlapping this, I don't know if I want to officially call it like a crossover just yet, but this sort of uh, overlapping that we're seeing between NWSL and Liga MX Feminil. Um, watching somebody like a uh, Maria Sanchez, right, get, get drafted out of Santa Clara to a team like the Red Stars and go through her rookie season, but then, you know, opt for, you know, I think, you know, a different, I won't say greener, but I'll say different pastures, right, in Liga MX Feminil and then sort of linking up with, with Chivas and then going on to Tigres Feminil and finding success there. Um, and then watching the growth of Liga Mix Feminine specifically sort of become this place to become another league really right next door to the United States to where perhaps, you know, maybe players of a certain caliber or in a certain position on, on their NWSL teams are saying, hey, you know, maybe this is a league where I can, you know, really get into it and really get into the mix. And I think maybe that's something that we – saw come to fruition really with somebody like a Sarah Luber, right? Like you mentioned, who was uh, someone who came in with the Red Stars as well and was a part of, uh, you know, Challenge Cup and and Fall Series for the Red Stars, um, but didn't see too much action in terms of the 2021 season. And about midway through, um, is announced with, with, with Club America and then, um, goes on this kind of playoff run with them and, and clearly had a good experience uh, because she opted to to stay with them for the duration of this, at the very least, this first half of, of 2022 with so America announcing her return. So uh, it's looking like, you know, Liga Mex is sort of becoming this this place, right, for, for perhaps, um, you know, players of a certain caliber who want to go out there and really try to get their feet wet. Well, and I love it's, I mean, it's, it's cliche, but, you know, we can say rising tide lifts all boats, right? And, and if there's more, um, more options for players, it means, you know, NWSL has to be more competitive in keeping 
players, you know, within the league. It also means for individual player development, they've got choices of, you know, maybe they've spent four or five years with the same club in the same place and need a challenge. We, you know, we've seen that a lot in, in soccer all over the world where it's just, you know, change of environment, different setup, different coach, you know, it's a good challenge to have. Um, I also like that we're starting to see more loans, right? Like Sarah Lubert heading to Club America isn't her transferring away from Chicago, but just being loaned out by Chicago so that she could get more minutes because, you know, she wasn't breaking into that starting lineup, but, you know, clearly has a lot of potential. Um, We saw, you know, sparks of it in, in fall series. So it's so great that there's somewhere for a player like that to go and and get minutes right and and of course you know we have a w league kicking off in in the u.s now um you know that will be another place that can help develop players but just overall i love that we've got just this this growth in Concacaf, right so that and i know this is a big dream but that we can you know we can end up having a Concacaf women's champions league when we actually have several countries with fully professional leagues. And we just, we just don't have that right now. Right. But with NWSL, Liga Max Feminile leading the way, like I'm just, I'm really thrilled that, you know, Lubert had that chance that Maria Sanchez was able to, Hey, I'm not getting minutes at Chicago heading to Tigris. Houston picks up her rights. And now she's coming back into the league after that, that brief loan um, last summer. So Tell me, tell me your thoughts on Maria Sanchez because you got to see her up close in Chicago. Yeah, you know, it was, um, gosh, I almost sort of feel like I've followed this player's career, in, at least at the pro level, for since the beginning. Because you know, Jen, that that 2019 draft class where Chicago had the number one pick and they went to the Davidson, that that draft event was held in Chicago. So and it feels like their, 10 years ago. <laughs> it feels like forever ago. It really, really does. And it's just, it also is just sort of crazy to think about now because it's like everything is we function in a much different way now when it comes to those types of events. But, you know, watching uh, this player get selected and drafted by Chicago and then, you know, fall into the second round, Chicago – uh, you know, selecting her, watching that, you know, that great reaction, right, with her and her Santa Clara teammates. Um, oh, and then I sort of that. getting, yeah. yeah, and then like getting the shot, you know, uh, to, to try to get a contract in, in, uh, in NWSL, which, you know, at the time, and if we remember that Chicago Red Sox team, it was a, it was a really stacked team. You know, you're talking about a Juliers, you know, a Sam Kerr, veteran players that were with the team since, you know, 2014, 2015, um, a ton of talent, right, on this roster. So it was a starting 11 that was incredibly difficult, that was going to be incredibly difficult to crack. But not only that, it is, we know how long, how, how difficult it is for players who come out of the draft to really go to into a preseason with an NWSL club and earn a contract. I don't think that that's talked about with enough emphasis. That is a difficult thing to do. And this player went into a team like Chicago Red Sox in 2019, who at the time was probably considered, what, a top three, top four club in the league, and earned a contract with this club for uh, her rookie season. And um, we only got to see snippets, uh, you know, of, of her with, with the team in Chicago. 
uh, kind of coming off of the bench, making nine appearances. You know, we got to see her a little bit in that NWSL championship final for Chicago. Um, but she wasn't, you know, this was, a, she was a player amongst seven players on, on the squad at the time that, you know, found it difficult to maybe try to crack that starting uh, 11. And, you know, when you're the type of player with her background that, yes, yeah, she's playing for clubs, but this is also a player that has been playing at a high level for a very long time. You know, this is a player that has been involved with the Mexican international side for several years. Right. She was a teenager, had already played in the World Cup at this point. Uh, so this is a player who, uh, you know, I think was maybe a little bit different caliber than maybe some other rookies at the time in 2019. This is a player that's, you know, it's like, hey, I, I need to continue my development. And that means getting minutes. And if it's not going to be with this club, I need to, you know, maybe try to, you know, ensure that I'm getting that. And uh, sure enough, right in that offseason, heading after that 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 big loss in the NWSL Championship Final to 2019, you know, we saw her head over to, to Liga MS Seminole with, with, with Chivas Seminole, which I think was, was a, a very big deal because, you know, we're talking about all these clubs in Liga MS Seminole that have these sort of, you know, these historic brands, you know, these, this, these, these teams with such iconography, right? When it comes just like to more than a hundred years old and just, yeah, you know, they, they have all these the colors, history. everyone knows the logos, the history. Right? Yeah. So that was, that was huge. You know, I think to even sort of see this player go to, go to Chivas and then, and then make the jump to Tigre Seminole, who's, you know, they won a ton of championships and, and Sanchez got to have that experience with the club as well and pick up a championship um, out of there. So to sort of see, you know, in between all this, right, in between her continuing her development in Liga Mex Seminil and uh, her, her return uh, and her progression with the national team, in between all that, sort of seeing uh, this sort of want, this sort of, uh, you know, this desire to return to the NWSL in some capacity. I, I reported during her time before she was signing with Vegas that there was some that there was some interest around this player, uh, you know, returning to NWL, but there were a couple times where the Dash were trying to, to get get the player right to the conference. But, you know, it did the deal just fell through, but it finally eventually worked out and, and, and Clarkson, you know, James Clarkson got his player, right? And um it ended up working out to where we got to see Sanchez a little bit finally back in NWSL for like a little bit, Jen, like a three week stint in, in the summer right. of last year. Last June. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just really exciting to sort of see her return, even if it was for a short period of time. It was a real like summer of Sanchez moment, right? And we got to uh, <laughs> kind of see a little, uh, a little, we got to see a little bit what, what, I guess, what could be the what if, you know, when it comes to this and just sort of hearing even somebody like a, you know, like a Rachel Daly talk about playing such limited minutes with somebody like Sanchez and how much of a bummer <laughs> that is to sort of be able <laughs> yeah. to play, you know, to be, oh, I got to play with this player for like a day and, and, and now I'm not going to get to. Like, that's unfortunate, you know. So, you know, you, that's a big, you know, to hear one of the captains and, and, and one of the faces of the franchise, you know, sort of. Um, well, that you know, tells you what a difference maker it tells you what a difference maker Maria Sanchez was just in those three games. She was clearly a spark and in her one home game, you know, she starts, she gets the game winner. It was, you know, a mm-hmm. great match. And I mean, you and I have talked about this before of, of that there's so much um, Mexican American fan base that can be tapped into 
by mm-hmm. NWSL that, you know, we've seen MLS struggle with the best way to do it over the years. And I don't think NWSL has even really grasped that that's something that they can be doing. But, you know, it's something that James Clarkson was aware of because he had been through the Dynamo Academy, been doing, mm-hmm. you know, scrimmages and games with the, the youth clubs of, of Mexico for, you know, for years. So I, I love that, you know, in 2018, before he was even coach, he helped Vera Powell get a scrimmage. I think that was with Cruz Azul or Monterey. I can't remember. Um, yeah, know, I think it might have been Marietta. Yeah. yeah, and then having the Tigris game in the fall of 2019, and Tigris would have come back in preseason back to Houston 2020. Of course, you know, COVID, you know, threw all that out the window. But I love that it's something that James has kept pursuing you know, and building relationships with that club and other clubs in Mexico. I know, I know he's visited and and I bet we'll see a lot more of that from other end of clubs too, especially, you know, now that we've got two clubs in Southern California. Um, but bigger than that, you know, I can't wait to see something like, um, you know, how we've seen between MLS and Liga Max having, you know, a little tournament, a little cup having, you know, a between Liga Max yeah. and NWSL, you know, short event like like the ICC or, or something like that. A very you know very simple format, but yeah, the the hey, you have these two fully professional leagues now. Liga MX is mm-hmm. no longer just the U twenty U twenty three Mexican kids only thing, right? Well, it's 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 growing mm-hmm. every year. Um, I think there's there's so much potential for there, but but let's get to the biggest part of of the whole Liga MX news is first round draft pick. Me official announcing that she's signing with Tigris and not going to sign with Orlando Pride and NWSL, even though, and I found this a little strange, that she was drafted by her college coach, you know, with <laughs> Amanda Cromwell taking over um, Orlando, leaving UCLA. Um, maybe you know, uh, you know, s- s- some more details. I'm just, I'm just guessing that she saw a challenging, exciting opportunity and said, I want to do something different. But, but what do you think? How do you read that, that move to Liga Max for a player who was already leaving college early, right? She wasn't yeah. just yeah. getting drafted, done with college. She was leaving college early, deciding to go pro, declared for the draft because you need to, even if you don't intend to play <laughs> in WSL, you need to mm-hmm. do that first year just in case. But, but how do you read the situation? Well, you know, when it got announced officially, I was ecstatic. I loved it. I, I, I love this for women's soccer right now, especially in uh, the CONCACAF region. I think this, this is it, right? This, these, these were like the, the scenarios and the stories that we maybe dreamt of one day happening, but not sure if we were going to live to see it. And, and now here we are, like we're, Liga MX Feminil is this league that is growing still, and it's still in its growing stages, but uh, having certain clubs that are clearly, clearly driving investment into their women's uh, teams and making them very lucrative places to come and and play and be able to sort of uh, now kind of lure other talent outside of of the talent that just is – within the country of, of Mexico, right? And that was, you know, we, we hear that all the time when we're talking about, you know, the men's side of the game, right? About um, 
you know, dual internationals or international international player, players at the high level, you know, opting to choose to go to certain leagues over one other specific league, right? And we didn't necessarily have too much of that with women's soccer. And when we did have it, it was like United States or Europe, right? But now we're with this signing, what makes it so exciting is it's kind of like this first instance of like, here is an American player coming up in, you know, U.S. collegiate systems, right? And it's and youth, na- and youth national team. We've seen her, you know, exactly. she was the leading scorer for the CONCACAF U20 tournament two years ago. Yeah. And then, you know, obviously getting drafted, right? That was a storyline coming out of that, having those connections with UCLA and Cromwell. And it all just sort of seemed like that was going to be the fit. And then all of a sudden, this sort of like exciting, breaking news and that, uh, you know, kind of pumping the brakes and saying, actually, this, this player is going to be playing for, for Seekers. And I love the, the announcement of that. I thought it was great. I would love to see, to see more of that, quite frankly. I think right now at this current stage of, of women's soccer, you know, I think this is, this is a part of it is, you know, the players having, um, you know, maybe a little bit of a say in terms of the trajectory, right? Exactly. Their career. And which way or, you know, which turn is it going to take? Um, you know, and it's very evident that right now in, in Orlando that, you know, they're, they're obviously going to be going through through a rebuild, right? And, and sort of, you know, building themselves back up a little bit. And while that might be, you know, exciting for some, you know, new prospects, and I mean, the league that might not be for everybody. And I think for somebody like Fischl opting to go with Tigre Seminil, you know, you're going to a country that has the sport of soccer just like deeply, deeply rooted in, in their in their existence, you know. And this is gonna do wonders for um, you know, not just on her, her development side in terms of her playing, but in terms of her brand, in terms of her image, in terms of getting her name out there, there are gonna be probably far more audiences familiar with Mia official name. That she just for the fact that she's playing in Mexico, then maybe she would have in her rookie year in a team that's going through a rebuild year. So there's just some that, perspectives that, that I think yeah. to look at when you're when we're looking at this. And that's such a good point: is that the exposure she's going to get, and it's not necessarily it is fan exposure, but it's also exposure to different eyes, whether that's coaches or fans or media or you know, that I, I think it's, it's really easy for, you know, fans and, and even media covering NWSL to forget that there are much stronger leagues out there. We're not the only big league out there and that there's a lot of leagues that have grown very quickly in the last couple of years. Um, you know, I think especially for someone of my generation raised on, you know, WSA was the first, it was the world's first fully professional league, right? right. There, there wasn't anywhere else that, that, that could match that. Um, you know, so we, we've seen over the past 20 plus years, so much growth in this game. And I think we're going to have to shake off that mindset of, oh, if a player isn't playing in NWSL, they're going to a lesser league, unless it's, you know, Super League in the UK, right? Where it really depends on the player, the club they're going to, the timing, 
um, of where they are with their national team or coming back from injury or roster sizes. I mean, there, there's so many little nuances, um, Mm -hmm. that come into play and what's, you know, what, what a player's looking for. We've seen players asked to be waived from NWSL rosters because they're not getting enough playing time and they know that if they're not playing x number of minutes they're going to lose their spot on their national team right you know there's all kinds of situations like this but uh, but uh, but i think your most important point is about you know the players having more of a say having having more agency in where they're playing and i think this is probably you know probably the biggest part of of the the cba that's currently being negotiated is it by me official by declaring for the draft she made herself eligible for the 2022 season and NWSL, even if she wasn't chosen, um, mm-hmm. she was chosen. But by signing elsewhere, she's choosing where she wants to go, and Orlando only holds her rights until the beginning of preseason 2023. Right. So if yeah. she comes back after that point, she comes back into NWSL or wherever she goes as a free agent. Right. Um, and you know, there could be transfer fees involved and all, all kinds of like, yeah. like, you know, we're, we're moving very quickly to graduating to high school of, of NWSL's career. I've been talking over the years. I was like, we're in elementary school. We're in junior high. I feel like we're really in yeah. high school now. Like, <laughs> like, you know, now we have a locker and have to like walk around to classes and drive <laughs> ourselves to school and, you know, that, really that, that kind of stuff. And it's overwhelming like and, we, and we really don't want to like get mixed in with the wrong crowd and make the wrong decisions. Right, because because yeah, <laughs> so you get you get. My I know analogy. that's an, I I'm into that. I like that. I haven't heard anyone put it like that. Yeah, in terms of like the trajectory of women's soccer, that we're all well, and and, and bowling is a good. We're in such it. a weird place, right? Like this is the tenth year of competition for NWSL. Previous leagues didn't last that long, right? There are very few mm-hmm. leagues that can say they've lasted lo- that long. I, I, I would guess it's the Australian league that can probably claim to be the um, longest tier one league, um, you know, that that's played competitively, yeah. though it's still not fully professional. And of course we have our own WPSL in uh, the U S yeah. that's existed straight on since 1998, but Bottom line, there's so many opportunities. And I just, I love that we have these different stories, right? Like Sarah Lubert's path, Maria Sanchez's path, the official's path, very different paths. There is not mm-hmm. one path. And, and I hope, you know, we as people who follow the league, support the league, root for the league, even, you know, when the shit's going down, you know, remember that, hey, you know, it's not, there's no reason to panic if a big name player opts to go elsewhere, it doesn't mean, you know, that the league isn't going to work. The same thing I, I, you probably remember this too, several years back where it's like, Oh, I hope they win the world cup. That'll really help the league. And I just remember the first time I heard that, heard that attitude of like, wait a minute, if the success of this league is predicated on winning the world cup every, every four years, it's like, that's not really a good business plan. (laughs) Yeah, so, you're telling yeah, me. It, it, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to look at it from the the worldview of this is great for the players. It's great for the sport, and ultimately, it is great for NWSL because I think it forces all of the clubs to kind of look at themselves and go, "Hey, why doesn't this player want to stay?" Right? 
you know, and we've, we've had much uglier reasons for players not wanting to stay in the past. This seems to be the official going, this is a different opportunity and I need something different. And I want to go play against people I haven't played against. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I love, I loved it. I love the announcement. And you could sort of see just the energy coming out of, uh, you know, social media and all the different channels and sort of their reaction to that. And I love, you know, the, the, the way you're sort of referencing it, you know, in terms of players finding these other opportunities and, and not viewing Liga MX Feminil as this sort of, you know, rinky-dink kind of league next door because that's not, that's not the case for this league anymore. Uh, you know, when – a huge reason in how we're seeing that is, is because a team like Houston Dash and the front office and head coach has looked next door and said, you know what, let's start having these scrimmages. Let's kind of have, you know, some, you know, uh, some games against each other and really kind of get in the mix with each other and go and go toe to toe, right? Measure up each other a little bit in terms of reason. And we're watching two teams two different leagues kind of hold hold their own against each other, right? And that just sort of breeds better competition in terms of, of the soccer landscape overall. But I, I love, I, my hope is that uh, more people wake up to that, Jen, and more people sort of uh, view it in that similar lens, that it, it is a place that can be, you know, another opportunity for players if they're looking for continued development. There was a very long time there when, you know, the W League in Australia was viewed as that. It was, you know, it's like I said, it's a right. smaller season that's viewed, you know, that, that takes place in the NWSL off season. And guess what? If you need to get some more development in, some more playing time, you can go over there. Well, you know what? You've got a year-round league that is happening in your backyard right next door that is uh, a good league where you could probably continue your development and maybe even learn some different things because we're starting to see also, you know, the importance of, you know, uh, playing in other leagues and adapting to different styles of play, right? And and that's something that we're hearing uh, from these players, right? Even, even with Sanchez, we just had an interview with her on Attacking Third for, for CBS Sports where she referenced that. She said, you know, a thing that I think that I'm bringing to NWSL, and I thought this, you know, she thought it during her rookie year was the fact that she is, uh, you know, more into to being more tactical on the ball and uh, someone who, who favors, you know, providing the assist versus providing the goal, right? Uh, and right. then on the other side of that, on the other side of that, she said, you know, I think the NWSL is very important and it added things to my own game, uh, like something like, uh, you know, the high competitive level and the very physical aspect of the athleticism. That is something that's lacking in the Mexican game. And it was a great interview that we had with her where she sort of talked about those differences and the importance of kind of combining all of those things together and adding all of those things as part of your game on the pitch. So um, I'm excited and I, and I hope we continue to see you know, more overlapping things like this when it comes to uh, NWSL and Liga MX, I mean, now, and players within, you know, the American uh, systems or even in, in the Mexican systems, because like we're excited to see somebody like me official go, uh, you know, to Liga MX, I mean, now, you know, we're excited to have somebody like Sanchez return to NWSL, you know, and, and I want to continue seeing more of that. I would love to see, you know, more players in Liga MX, I mean, they'll try to test the waters as well and try to see if they can, uh, you know, make an impact on an NWSL club and, and vice versa. And I also think about, um, you know, one thing you said about how, you know, these really iconic brands these you know, they, they've been around forever, right? A lot of these Mexican clubs. Um, and so that is something that makes it really interesting for me when I think about the contrast of NWSL 
and ligamex femenil, right? That I, I, I simplified as there's there's three hurdles that women's soccer has had to overcome in the U.S. is one, women playing sports, two, soccer as a professional sport, three, yeah. <laughs> brands, right? So mm-hmm. in, in the U.S., women playing you know, sports isn't that strange, but of course, women playing team sports on a professional level, you know, it's such a crowded sports landscape. That's been a challenge. Soccer, you know, trying to break into the crowded landscape. That's been a challenge. Brands, all these brands are new, right? They don't have old histories. Even if they partner with an MLS club, they're not sharing the same name. So, you know, there's three big challenges there that NWSL has had to, to work on. But when I look at those same three hurdles for Mexico, well, they, soccer is already the the sport of the nation. Yep. Two, these brands are, as you said, iconic. So the only hurdle is women playing sports. And mm-hmm. I think there's still a lot to be overcome there. But I've also seen a huge change over the last 10 years in terms of that, like, wow, my daughter plays you know, like that connect that father daughter connection thing too, and yeah. stigmas being broken of it's okay to be gay on the national team. Just a lot of mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of change in, in in that culture. And I think of all the hurdles that that's really the last little thing holding um, holding uh, League of Mex back, and it's barely barely holding it back, right? So that's why, you know, it's so exciting. And, and I, I think not surprising to see the numbers for say, you know, Monterey Tigris, the, the second leg of the final was what, like 60,000 people. Right. And, and they're into it, you know? Um, so there's so much potential. I feel like NWSL can learn from Liga Mex, Liga Mex can learn from NWSL. And, you know, by extension, the players, and, you know, we've said it over and over at this point, you know, it's like, it's a different experience for me official Maria Sanchez, you know, kind of completing her game by getting the multiple experiences, but more important than anything, I think it comes down to these players having a choice of, Oh, if I don't want to play in NWSL, there are other places I can play and make a, a, a year round living. And, you know, to me, that's the most important part. Yeah. I'm in a year with you. I think it's, um, <laughs> I think it's a very special time that we're all uh, kind of witnessing right now. And um, I think I'm even more like moved and impressed by all of it um, unfolding in front of us, you know, because it's all happening kind of in light of an ongoing pandemic, right? And, and this type of stuff, you never know. It's so unpredictable at times, right? So the fact that there, you know, are still, um, you know, these types of moves that are being made, and um, players and clubs, you know, uh, sort of still willing to have these mutual investments, right, in each other. I think it's a very special thing right now. Yeah. So last question for you, Sandra, and this one's a fun one. Um, who do you think is, is going to win the spring season or clausura season of Liga Max for the women? I mean, it was a really exactly. close final. Went down, went, went down to penalties between Monterey and Tigres, you know, basically a classical final. And, yeah. and Monterey got the win on penalties. Who who do you think is going to be the champion for this spring? It's, <laughs> it's so early in the, the season. I know, I know. That's why it's a uh, fun throwaway you know question. I, I love um, I love sort of watching uh, Pumas 
trying to do what they did. I would love for it to be uh, two different teams, right? I think we're also sort of witnessing this phase of League of Mexico. So we saw a similar phase in NWSL where people and fans of the league were like, oh, it's always the same teams in the championship, right? And we're, we're witnessing a lot of Tigres and Rayadas and, you know, Monterrey battles, you know, for the championship. So I wouldn't mind maybe seeing a little bit of a different uh, teams in, in the grand final. I would love to maybe see it come down to two two new clubs, maybe see Pumas in there, maybe, you know, watch and, and see some, somebody like Atlas and, and, and see them get into the mix. Uh, but in terms of who's going to lift the, the trophy at the end of the day, I think maybe Rayadas can, can still uh, take it again, maybe go back to back and then get another and get another championship. Yeah, it's always good to have a couple different people at the top. So it's not, you know, you don't want one dynasty that kind of, you know, makes it boring. Got to keep it exciting. We'll see, we'll, see. <laughs> well, Sandra, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about NWSL Liga MX. And of course, keep up the great work on CBS Sports Reporting and of course, your Attacking Third podcast. Thanks, Ben. All right, time to wrap it up with the back four. NWSL preseason is just a few days away. Assuming that the first ever NWSL CBA gets finalized in time, players are due to report February 1st. We'll see how this all plays out next week. And the Challenge Cup is set to begin March 18th with the Cup Final scheduled for Saturday, May 7th. And yes, that final will air live on CBS just like it did last year. And the AFC Asian Women's Cup, which is the tournament that serves as Women's World Cup qualifying for the Asian Confederation, that is underway, being played in India. All games air live on Paramount+. Plus. Of course, they're at really awkward times because of the, the time zones. But you can always rewatch them later. Uh, one of the things I love about Paramount+, Plus is past videos just stay there forever. It's not like my experience with... Uh, ESPN Plus, where games are there for a couple months and then they disappear. Paramount Plus seems to be building a catalog that stays there forever. And Paramount Plus slash CBS, they've been picking up a lot of soccer properties lately. So at this point, I have to say there's little reason not to subscribe to Paramount Plus. For $10 a month, they're getting NWSL, CONCACAF, Men's Qualifiers, Champions League, this Asian Cup, even games like... Uh, the women's cup that Louisville hosted last August, it's still there to watch. Uh, they even have UEFA women's world cup qualifiers and the games stay forever. Nearly every 2020 and 2021 NWSL game still available on Paramount plus the only ones that aren't are the ones that were Twitch exclusive. So even games that air on CBS sports network or CBS, you know, big CBS eventually are archived on Paramount Plus as well. All right, that's that's the end of my Paramount Plus shilling. Um, number three, mark your calendar. We're about three weeks from the start of the 2022 She Believes Cup. The U.S. women, they'll face Iceland, New Zealand, and Czech Republic. You got two match days in L.A., and then... The final match day will be Frisco, Texas, north of Dallas. For more info about tickets, viewing, merch, everything that they do around She Believes, check out ussoccer.com. 
Last but certainly not least, um, always want to remind you guys about the Wosopedia resources that uh, I try to keep building and sharing. So if you go to keepernotes.com, click on Wosopedia. Um, I've got a Google calendar of women's soccer dates that you can subscribe to. I've got the Google Sheet link for um, NWSL rosters by club that I keep updating. I've got a history of all U.S. women's national team call-ups going back to 2015. And of course, links to buy my almanacs. I'm almost finished with the 2021 almanac, meaning that's from 2013 through 2021. It's going to be almost 400 pages. It's amazing. Available. You can buy it in print. You can buy it in print with the PDF option. And eventually I'll, I'll have the PDF option by itself for sale. So lots of good stuff. And hey, if you have any ideas for more stuff that should be added to the Wosopedia page, just email me, keeper at keepernotes.com. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. I want to give a big shout out to everyone who listens, tweets about it, emails me about it, tells friends about it. Always appreciate that. Big thanks to the Beautiful Game Network for hosting this podcast. And as always, to my producer, Sean Ringrose, for putting this all together. But now she's anybody's girl.